The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Well, just the other day, I was driving in a 70 zone, and maybe because it was down a hill, and maybe because I wasn't paying attention, I think I started to creep into 80 k's an hour in my car, and then suddenly I saw him, a policeman with a radar gun aimed right at me at the bottom of the hill, and he looked so happy to see me. Morning, sir. <laughs> exactly. But then he put down his gun in disgust. He looked at it. Maybe the gun had malfunctioned. Maybe I was under the limit. But he gave me that look as I went by like, oh, I so should have had you. And I went, phew. But afterwards, I was a little bit annoyed. What are the policemen doing at the bottom of a hill trying to catch speeding motorists? But there'll be other times I'm driving in my car and I'll look in my mirror and there'll be some bozo weaving in and out of traffic doing 30 over the limit and then tailing me then I'm thinking, well, where are the police now? You know, they're everywhere when I'm driving, but when some other bozo is speeding, they're nowhere. How is this fair? Today our topic is justice. And our question is this, how can I find extraordinary justice when life is so unfair? So welcome again to our May series of talks where we're going to look at how extraordinary life can be. Our four topics this month will be justice, sex, wealth, and respect, and each week, one by one, we'll look at these topics, see what the Bible, in particular the book of Ecclesiastes, has to say, and this will come in the form of a 20-minute talk from me now, followed by some question and answer from you guys. And today our question is this, how can I see extraordinary justice in a life when life is so unfair? And how can we define justice? Well, one of the first things a kid learns to say is, that's not fair. You know, if you give him an ice cream, you need to give me an ice cream. That's not fair. So justice is to give me what I deserve, to give people what they deserve, and when that doesn't happen, that's unfair. And the Bible says the same thing in the reading we had, chapter 3, verse 16. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Life is unfair, there is no justice. So our question remains, how can we find extraordinary justice when life is so unfair? Well, we're going to answer this now, and you can see in the outline in front of you, there are three parts to this morning's talk. In the first part, we'll look at the problem. In the middle part of the talk, we'll look at, well, what's one way of looking at this? And in the final third part of the talk, we'll look at, well, what's an extraordinary way of looking at this? So let's begin with the first part of the talk. Well, what exactly is the problem? The problem is this. We live in a world where the bullies win, the bad guys win, and the good guys lose. This is rugby league. You hit it up for five tackles and you kick on the six. You hit it up for five tackles and you kick on the six. You hit it up for five tackles and you kick on the six. I explained this to my three young boys and they said, Dad, that is boring. I said, exactly. Hit up for five, kick on the six. Hit up for five, kick on the six. But I said, you should have been around in the 1980s because that's when league was exciting because they were good guys. They were bad guys. They were biting, kicking, maiming and cheating 
and the rest were just blind. They, it's like they couldn't see. It was like pro wrestling, but it was rugby league. And what made it even worse was the bad guys would always win. Somehow Queensland would win game after game. And I remember walking out just furious, angry with the world, like wanting to punch a wall, like evil had triumphed. What is going on? How is this fair? We live in a world where the bullies win and the good guys lose. This is Steve Jobs. He's the pin-up boy of the 21st century, but by now we all know he was a bully. He had a narcissistic personality disorder. He was disloyal to his friends, disowned his family, impossible to work with, and yet somehow history has vindicated him. He was a CEO of Apple. He's on the cover of books and magazines. He wins awards. He got everything exactly the way he wanted. We live in a world where the bullies win and the good guys lose. And maybe it's the same with us at work. We work for a boss who's a bully, who's proud, who's insecure, takes credit for our work, blames us for their mistakes, and they're impossible to work with. And yet, in public, they're celebrated, they get awards, they get promotions. We live in a world where the bullies win and the good guys lose. And maybe at home we're married to a spouse or we're with a partner and they're impossible with to live with, they're mean and nasty at home, oh, but in public, they're celebrated at work, popular with their friends, they do charity, they volunteer at church, and they're praised in public, and yet we know at home, they're a mean, nasty person. So we live in, in a world where the bullies win and the good guys lose. And the Bible says exactly the same thing in chapter 4, verse 1. I looked and I saw all the oppression... I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. We live in a world where the oppressors win and the oppressed lose. The bullies win and the good guys lose. So that's the problem. Let's come to the middle part of the talk. Well, what's one way of looking at this? What's one way of solving this problem? Well, one way is to say, well, what did we expect? We are no different from the animals. What did we expect? Now, a few years ago, I decided to play for the old boys at my school. So, you know, the old boys is where you get the alumni from your high school. In our 20s and 30s and 40s, we get together and we form a rugby team. And we play our old high school team. And for some reason that day, they got us playing against the under-16s. We were grown men playing against 15-year-olds. And we just monstered them. Like, we killed them. What is the point of this exercise? We're bigger, stronger, and meaner than them. But what made it worse was we had a player, and uh, I mentioned his name yesterday, and I've been told not to mention it, because you can Google him and find him, so I won't mention his name. He looked like this. He looked like this. And not exactly this guy, but this guy on our side was an ex-first-grade player in the Sydney competition, an ex-Wallaby schoolboy. He was a forward and he played like it was World War Three, Like it was a test match against the All Blacks. He was smith spitting, snarling, growling, cursing, hitting, punching, kicking, stomping. And it was so inappropriate. And one mother on the sideline was so distressed, she screamed out, Someone stop him! He's an animal! He's an animal! Stop him! And she was right. He was an animal. And that's what animals do. They kick, bite, maim, and kill. This is Edward Yong. He writes in the science section of The Atlantic. And in his TED Talk, he talked about what is 
normal animal behaviour. And normal animal behaviour is this. And this was his example, where a wasp will lay its eggs inside a caterpillar, and so the baby wasp will slowly grow and hatch inside the caterpillar and use it for food while it's alive and slowly eat it from the inside out. This is normal animal behaviour. And normal animal behaviour is where cats torture birds, hamsters will eat their own babies, and the wildebeests in their migration leave behind the weak, the frail and the young, and only the strongest, the meanest and the nastiest survive. So one way of looking at justice is this. Well, what do we expect? We're no different from the animals. This is the animal kingdom. If we're just molecules, if we're just another species on this planet, well, this is a world where we too need to be the strongest, the meanest and the nastiest to survive. And justice is really just an arbitrary social convention. It's a social construct and it's a crush for the weak. And the Bible wonders the same question. Chapter 3, verse 19. The fate of humans is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. If all we are is molecules, if all we are is just another species on the planet, then really why are we crying out for justice? We are just animals and any cry for justice really is meaningless because it's an arbitrary social convention. So that's one way of looking at the problem. But let's now come to the final part of the talk. Let's have another way of looking at this, an extraordinary way. And I think we can pick up three things from the Bible to give us a new extraordinary way of looking at justice. Number one, we are more than just animals. Now, one time when I was working as a junior doctor in the emergency department of a large public teaching hospital in Sydney, a nurse made this announcement over the loudspeaker. Could someone please bring the diabetic to bed eight? And we just cringed. Like, we think this person is a human being, and yet they just got referred to as a diseased body part and a bed number. This is a person with dignity and respect, and yet all they were was... Could someone bring the diabetic to bed eight? It was so dehumanising. But then why is it dehumanising? Because it makes us ask, well, what is a human then? It's dehumanising because deep down we sense we're more than just a bunch of molecules. We're more than just an animal species. We're more than just a sum of body parts. But what is it that makes us more than just the sum of our body parts? Well, the Bible asks the same question. It wonders, maybe this might be it. Chapter 3, verse 21. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? Is there a difference between us and the animals? Is there a spirit inside us that is different from the spirit inside that of an animal? Is there an immaterial, immortal part of us that makes us qualitatively different from the animals. Because if that's true, we cannot treat humans the same way we treat animals. And so we talk about human rights, human dignity. See, it's interesting, when a hamster kills its own baby, we don't accuse it of war crimes, we don't accuse it of crimes against hamsterhood, and yet when a human kills a baby, we do start talking about war crimes 
and crimes against humanity. Somehow we're not allowed to treat each other the same way animals treat each other. We have something that gives us respect and dignity and justice. But what is it? What is this thing again? Well, interestingly, we have to start using language like human rights. And the USA Declaration of Independence, 1776, puts it this way. We believe that all humans are born equal and they have been endowed, gifted by their creator, God, with inalienable human rights, rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So somehow we have to talk about human rights, but then we're just moving goalposts back one step, aren't we? Where do these human rights come from? Because human rights, as you know, and as philosophers say, is a metaphysical concept. You can't give me a molecule of human rights. So a metaphysical concept needs a metaphysical origin, and maybe that origin is God. God gives us our human rights. It's actually very hard to talk about human rights without talking about a divine origin for these human rights. And if that's true, then every human has incredible respect, dignity, and a need for justice. And a crime against me is actually a crime against God. A crime against the least of our humans is a crime against God, the creator of this universe. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is this. There is a God who will right all wrongs. Now, when I get home from work, this is what I love to do. Sink down in the couch, get the remote in one hand, a drink in the other hand, and I'm about to turn on the TV. But I'm at a stage of life where I have three young boys, Toby, Cooper and Jonty, age eight, six and four, and just when I'm about to turn on the TV, they run to me and then they say, Dad, 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 my brother's not sharing his Lego. Dad, 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 my brother just punched me in the face. Dad, 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 my brother just ripped up my artwork. And I'm thinking, oh. And right now I have two options. Option number one, oh, I'm not going to do anything. You go sort it out yourself. Option number two, all right, let me get involved. Let me check it out uh, and let me see what's going on. In our world, in our cry for justice, we basically have two options. Option number one, you know what, there is no God. We're just a bunch of molecules. We're just one of many animal species on this planet. And we're just going to have to sort it out for ourselves. Be the biggest, strongest, meanest and nastiest there is on this planet. Or option number two, there is a God. He sees everything and he will right all wrongs. And he will bring justice where there is no justice. And the Bible says the same thing. Chapter 3, verse 17. God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. That is the hope that there is a God who will right all wrongs. That means if we have the narcissist bully boss who takes credit for our work, blames us for their mistakes, that's okay. There's a God who sees everything, he gets involved, and he will right all wrongs. The road rager who comes up behind us, that's all right. There's a God, he sees everything, he will get involved and he will right all wrongs. And because of that, point number three, this frees us up to have a good time on earth. Now, I've got little boys, as I mentioned, and right now they're playing AFL. And 
I thought when I signed my kids up for Saturday sports, it was going to be like this. It was just going to be a glorified child mining thing. I just dumped them off at the ground and I could run away and grab a newspaper and grab a coffee. But everything's changed now. Somehow it's all about parental involvement. So just the other night, I dumped my four-year-old off, four-year-old off at practice, and I was just about to run away and grab a coffee when the coach looked at me and said, oh, we've got so many kids tonight. I thought we might split them up into two games. I'll take one game. You take the other game. I thought, what is going on? So I had to ref an umpire an AFL game with four-year-olds, 24-year-olds running around, and I lost control. I had no control of this game. Like, equipment got broken, balls got lost, children got lost, people got hurt. It was actually no fun for anyone. And after a while, the coach came back, said, thank you, you've done a great job, Uh, let me take over. And when he took over, he could control the game, control the kids, and everyone had fun. That's the counterintuitive irony of life. To have fun, we actually need someone in control. Philip K. Howard, this is his thesis in his book, The Rule of Nobody. He says, to have fun, we need freedom. But to have freedom, someone actually needs to be in control. There need to be clear rules, clear laws, clear enforcement of the laws, clear vindication of the innocent and punishment of the wrongdoer. And if we have those things, we have freedom. And if we have freedom, we have fun. On Anzac Day, friends invited me to the beach. I couldn't make it, and I, I, said, I said, well, how was it? How's your day at the beach? And they said, oh, it was no fun. Because it was crazy out there, too many surfers, and one hothead on his surfboard was just aiming his board at everyone and, and growling and swearing at everyone in the water. There was no one controlling the surfers, no one enforcing the rules of surfing, so it was no fun. See, if no one enforces the laws, it's actually no fun. And it becomes a world where Enron can blackmail the government where Bernie Madoff can make off with your life savings in a giant Ponzi scheme, and where the road rager is going to ruin your family's Sunday drive. If no one is in control, we can't have fun. But if someone is in control, it frees us up to have fun. And this is what the Bible wonders. If God is in control, we can have fun. Chapter 3, verse 22. I saw that there is nothing better for a person to enjoy, to enjoy life, to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. But this can only happen if there's someone who will bring them to see what will happen after them, if there is a judgment um, in, in the life to come. So if God is in control, we have freedom, and we, if we have freedom, we can have fun. Well, do you remember our original question? It was this. How can I see extraordinary justice... In, in a world where life is so unfair. And I've suggested that one solution is say, well, what do we expect? We're no different from the animals. A cry for justice is just naive. It's just a crutch for the weak. It's just an arbitrary social construct. Animals don't talk about justice. Why should we talk about justice? But there's another way of looking at it, and it's this. We are more than animals because we have God's spirit in us and one day God will right all wrongs and restore justice. And that means in the meantime, we can enjoy life. But how do we know which option is the right one? Are we animals or are we more than animals? It actually all comes down to who we think Jesus Christ is. It all comes down to who Jesus is. Because in the Bible, in the New Testament, it says Jesus didn't just live for us He didn't just die for us, 
but he rose from the dead. And the Bible says if he rose from the dead, it means we too will rise from the dead. That means we're important, but it also means one day we have to stand before God and God will right all wrongs and we have to give an account to God. And it also means we can enjoy life now. It all hinges on whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. Well, just a few years ago, it was night time. I was riding my bike, uh, just enjoying a nice bike ride in the suburban streets of Sydney. And I came to an intersection where I had to turn right. So I stopped my bike, signal as I was about to turn right, had to give way to a car coming. And the car behind me did not like that. He came right up behind me and he hit his horn. And then he got out the window and he said, move your leg now or I'll run over it. All right, now what am I going to do now? I have two options. We are just animals. So now I have to be the bigger, stronger, nastier animal. I have to get off my bike, go to him in his car, uh, maybe smash his windscreen out, haul him out of his car, teach him a lesson, or maybe I have to just accept, no, I'm the weaker animal, and this is my fate in life. I have to be the doormat, and I just have to stew on this for the rest of my life. That's one option. The other option is, well, you know what? I'm a child in the image of God. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead, so I know I'm important in God's eyes. And buddy, one day you'll have to stand before God and give an account for all your actions. God will right all wrongs. And because of that, I can see extraordinary justice, even though life seems unfair right now. And that frees me up to enjoy my bike ride. Thanks. For the oppressed and the oppressors, it is claimed that they have no comforter. If there is a God, a comforter, is he for both the oppressed and the oppressor? Does he comfort both? Um, So it's asking a question on the exact interpretation of the verse. I think the big thing with Ecclesiastes, it's it's always, it's in poetry form, it's often making statements in question form. It's always wondering out loud, thinking out aloud. Uh, and I think that's the difference between Australians and Americans. So I've studied in Australia, then I went to study in America. You know in Australia when someone asks a question, everyone goes, oh, don't ask a question. You know, let us all just go home and look it up. Whereas in America, you, you get actually 10 or 20% of class credit for asking questions out loud. So people didn't process out aloud, and you think... And then they'll ask the silliest questions, and everyone around is going, good question, good question, good question. <laughs> They're very affirming in America. And what sounded like a dumb question to you was a good question to an American, and that's because they're processing out aloud. And I think Ecclesiastes is doing a lot of American-type thinking where you're processing out aloud and asking questions. So it's actually not stating direct truth, but in the processing, in the dialectic, in the Socratic method, we're approaching closer to the truth. So I think it's just saying, is there supernatural? Is there personal God, a God of justice, so that we can even define what's the difference between an oppressor and an oppressed? I think that's what it's basically asking. Like, where do we even get these notions of justice and, in, and future vindication for the innocent? Now, we have two questions that are <coughs> rather similar. One is... How far should we pursue administering justice on earth through our legal system when God will ultimately bring justice in the end? And similarly, should we try to comfort and get justice for the oppressed or leave it to God? 
All right, so justice is a big, big, big thing for God in the Bible. The more and more we read the Old Testament, we realize the suffering servant of Isaiah, he preaches righteousness. And as you know, in Hebrew and in Greek, they only had the same word, one word for justice and righteousness, and the same in Greek. So whereas when we see in Hebrew the word tzadek, and in Greek the word dikaiosune, the, the English translator has to decide, is this righteousness, like a moral virtue, or is it justice, like more of a legal forensic concept we're talking about? So you're always having to decide. So often it's quite ambiguous in the Old Testament, and we're talking moral virtue or legal forensic uh, concepts. And, and so because of our English translations, I think we miss just how big justice is in the Bible and how God's heart is so much into justice. And it's amazing how just even the smallest things will get God outraged. One of the big things that outrages God in the Old Testament is you're cheating people in the markets. You're selling them 10 pounds of wheat, but you're really only giving them nine. And, and that really outrages God. So even the most tiny bits of injustice God is outraged by, he's outraged by the treatment of prisoners of war. That's another big one he has. So he has a big sense of social justice. And then I think as Christians, we pick up the same heart of God. What makes him happy makes us happy. What makes him outraged also makes us outraged. So that's the problem. That's the question. What do we do about it? I think the Bible uh, gives us a few helpful guidelines. It says, well, we need to do something. We need to confront injustice where we see it. And God, and, and God brings his justice on earth through ordinary people like us. He does extraordinary things through ordinary people like us. So one of my favorite stories of Jesus is where he heals the paralyzed man. But he was only able to heal the paralyzed man because his friends, the paralyzed friend, man's friends, brought the man to Jesus and could only get him to Jesus because they climbed a roof dug a hole in the roof and lowered him in front of Jesus in front of a crowd. And because Jesus thought their faith, their friend got healed. So somehow God does extraordinary things, but through the actions of faithful, ordinary people like us. So God will bring justice on earth through our actions. The Bible also, especially in Romans chapter 13, says God has also established formal uh, systems of authority, like uh, the legal system, the police system, to bring justice on earth as well so we can also have proper avenues of justice that we can appeal to but when that doesn't work the bible says well uh well then we just have to realize trust god there's a just loving god and he will restore justice he will vindicate the innocent one day so the example would be me and the the road rage driver behind me i had three uh three step choice according to the bible First step, confront the driver, say, hey, uh, you're not obeying the rules of the, 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 the road. Uh, I could have tried that, and that probably got me nowhere. Second thing, there might be avenues of justice I can appeal to. Is there a policeman here? Well, that got me nowhere because there were no policemen in the middle of the night that night. Uh, so my third avenue of justice then is, okay, God, you see everything. You've got a reason for what's going on here. I'm just going to have to trust you on this, and I know you will always vindicate the innocent one day and, and punish the wrongdoer. We'll probably have a moment if people want to come back uh, at Sam with some of these uh, responses. But the last formal question I've got here, slightly different tack. Do the statements in Ecclesiastes, the same fate awaits humans and animals, and who knows if the human spirit goes up, etc., actually support the views of people like Professor Singer that humans are just animals and we should treat sentient animals like humans? Okay. 
Yep, so the whole notion of not just human rights, but animal rights. So Professor Singer is saying several things. He's saying we are just one of many species, and so we're guilty of speciesism if we prefer our species over another species. And so for Professor Singer, that means two things. Uh, one, we need to be much more respectful of animals. So don't treat them like animals. Treat them the same way we will treat a human being. But interestingly, it's a two-edged sword. He would say the other thing, and this is very controversial, uh, and he says, well, therefore, humans with disabilities, we could treat them the same way we treat animals with disabilities. He say, you know, just like we put down a diseased horse, why don't we put down diseased animals or... or babies with disabilities, like we have no problems putting down a two-year-old chimpanzee, why can't we put down a two-year-old infant? So Singh actually says these things. So you can see it's actually a two-edged sword when you accuse us of speciesism and just saying we're exactly the same as the animals. I I think I've got several things to say. Um, It is interesting, once we take away the notion of human rights, it's very hard to argue against Peter Singer. Like he, He really is saying what is a logical extension of a naturalist world, if all we are is molecules, if all we are is another species, uh, why can't we do this? Why, why isn't he right? But what's interesting is this. I was thinking about this. Where do animal rights come from? We all talk about animal rights. Where do animal rights come from? So when a whale eats a harp seal, you know, no one is outraged. We're going, you know, cause that, so, so no seal is saying, hey, you violated my rights, you know. Uh, and no whale will say, oh my gosh, I've committed crimes against sealhood. So where did the notion of animal rights come from? Like lions eat gazelles, wasps lay eggs on caterpillars. Animal rights actually have to come from an external source, a third party, i.e. us. We endow animal rights upon animals. They can't do it upon themselves. So they actually have to come from someone else. So then where do human rights come from? If all we are is molecules, if all we are is another species on the planet, we actually cannot construct human rights just from where we are. They actually have to come from an external third-party source, i.e. God. God endows, confers a status. It's actually a status thing, a status of rights upon us. Yes. If it was an example, yes. Yeah, so the question is, how is that different from karma? Karma's actually got a lot going for it. My wife and I often talk about parking karma. Shall we go into the city? Because I think we've got enough parking karma. I think we might be able to find a parking spot if we go in the city. And then we don't get our parking karma. Oh, okay, what have you been up to? Why can't we get a parking spot? Uh, And the Bible actually doesn't use the language of karma, but wisdom literature, like Proverbs, actually says, by and large... All things being equal, if you just do the right and wise things, things will go well for you. But if you don't do the right and wise things, things won't go for you well for you. So it says, by and large, you know, if you um, study hard, life will go well for you. But if you're lazy, you don't get out of bed, life won't go well for you. By and large, if you're a good parent and you're faithful to your wife, you'll have a very happy marriage. But if you're unfaithful to your wife, your marriage will be very unhappy. So wisdom literature does talk about that. It lives in a very, what's called a consequential 
teleological universe. If we live according to God's purpose, by and large, things will go well. But we know, by and large, all things often aren't equal, and often there will be exceptions to the rule. And I think that's what, where Ecclesiastes often pushes. Uh, and then we realise there's more to this universe then, than just this by and large consequentialism and the teleological universe that Proverbs sets up. And that's um, often there is injustice, where the wicked do seem life goes well for the wicked, and life doesn't go well for the innocent. And often in the Psalms they ask that question, uh, I, as in, I'm not seeing this design in the universe playing out, God. And so where the Bible is different then is two things. One, we have to just often sit back and just trust that God has a bigger picture than what we can see and just trust that he knows what's going on. But often, and also number two, when it comes to salvation, it doesn't work on karma. Do good and God will love you. Salvation flicks around and says it's, it's a gift rather than gain grace rather than works uh, because God loves you we, we can do good so the Bible flips around and gives us the results first and then how we should behave sorry. yes sorry. yeah no worries yeah this idea that rights are given by God okay um, I can understand God can put the status of the world children, mm. we have attributes mm. But surely you're right, by well, it's very late, it's something that you can do by respect and conviction. Mm. Otherwise, not a right. Yep, that's right. I, I, don't, I don't understand the idea of the fact that you're made in the image of God or you have vertical or is it horizontal conferred to us by God or can it be a social convention and the United Nations uh, Charter of Human Rights is is a purely secular document doesn't need to use the language of divine, sacred or God but then what's interesting is what do you do when someone doesn't want to sign the document like yeah, suddenly it doesn't exist because it's, it's, a, it's a social convention that they don't want to play part to and suddenly you, you can't make them play the same game. So then the question then, is this just an arbitrary social game like backyard rules and this works in our backyard and I understand you have a different backyard and in your backyard there's no such thing as human rights. But, but then we just don't live as if that's true. Somehow deep down we all believe humans have dignity, respect, are equal and we can't treat them the same way animals treat each other. Mm-hmm. No worries. Thanks. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.